Now, if you've got your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 5 and let us uh, look at one of the miracles that is recorded there for us. Um, Luke chapter 5, well, I guess I need to turn there too. Luke chapter 5, uh, verse 12 through 16. You all follow along. I will read this to us and then we will uh, glean what we can from God's Word. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Often in life and by surveying the crowd in here, much more often for some of us than the rest of you. We say something or we do something that creates offense with somebody else. And uh, we need to go and apologize. Now, generally, the thought of apologizing wells up within us the emotions of fear and um, nervousness. Now, generally, that fear and that nervousness is going to stem from the thought that this person that I have offended, they may not forgive me. Years ago, um, before I was on staff here at Grace, while my wife and I were members of Grace, I, I worked for a ministry called Second Chance. It was a drug and alcohol, an adolescent drug and alcohol ministry. And um, every Friday night, there would be a, a, a program meeting. And the adolescents were there, of course, but the parents and the siblings would come. Certain adolescents who had progressed enough in their program earned the right to sit down after the meeting for a few minutes in front of their parents and to apologize or to make amends for wrongs that they had done in and around their addiction. Um, It was always interesting to me after that period where the adolescents were able to make amends to their parents, there would be tears and bawling and and crying. And, And as a counselor, I would go back with the adolescents to another room, and yet there was always a sense of relief and a weight that was off of them and and a gratefulness that they experienced. It uh, It was an emotional thing to always witness, but it was also a beautiful thing to see. But what was a little humorous was the few hours prior to the meeting. It was humorous because I wasn't going through it. These adolescents would find out a few hours before whether or not that week they had earned the right to apologize to their parents. And so once that was announced, who had earned the right to apologize to their parents, you could begin to see the fear and the nervousness begin to well up within these students. Um, For some of them, they would get very, very solemn and very, very quiet. 
Um, some of them would kind of become a little bit testy. You didn't need to tease them or joke around with them or anything like that. Just kind of let them be. Um, others, they would kind of they'd get all this nervous energy. The reason they were fearful and nervous is because for many of them, they were about to tell things to their parents that their parents did not know about, or at least they didn't think they knew about. Theft, uh, immoral behavior, um, usage time, all sorts of events, lies and deceptions. And they, naturally, were terrified of what their parents would do. Are they going to forgive me? We, I think, can relate to what these students would go through when it comes to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Oftentimes, we wonder, will God forgive me? Now, if, if you are in Christ, if you are regenerate, if you are a believer, then you may not currently be experiencing that, but I suspect you can think back Think back to the time prior to the exercising of saving faith. The Holy Spirit was probably bringing you to the point where you felt the weight of your sin, where you felt the guilt and the conviction and the heaviness and the desperation of understanding your state of sin. And most likely, in some degree, there was this question in your mind Will God forgive me? Some of you uh, may be in Christ, but you may still be experiencing that same question. You may have some particular sin that haunts you, some grievous dark sin that you just don't really see how God could forgive that one. And so you may have that question in your mind at times. Will God forgive that? Now, we come to this story in Luke chapter 5, and I think we can see the same fear and nervousness in this man, in this leper. For some reason, the text doesn't tell us, this man became aware of the power and ability of Jesus Christ to heal him of his disease. Maybe he'd seen Jesus do miracles before. Maybe somebody had told him. The text doesn't say. But he knew that Jesus possessed the power to take away his sickness, his disease. And you can just imagine the debate going through his head before he actually approached Jesus. I suspect the sides of his head were saying different things. Something like, just ask him. He's your only shot. (sighs) Come on. You're filled with skin disease. Nobody wants to be around you. He's going to look at you and run like everybody else. You don't have anything else to bank on. Just do it. Ask him. I'm tired of getting ostracized and rejected all the time. Ah, Finally, the courage would outweigh the fear and the nervousness. And he approached Jesus, most likely with this question on the forefront of his mind, will 
Jesus, heal me. And what does he find? He finds a Savior saying, I will. Beautiful words in his ears. We find the same thing. We find a Christ who is willing. Yes, we have the question, will he forgive me? But we have a Christ who is willing to forgive. I want to, uh, to draw out for you all four ideas about the willing Christ that we have. Because you see, while in the story, in the text, it specifically is talking about a physical healing. I think this is also not just simply a picture of the power of the God incarnate, Jesus Christ, to heal physically from a disease. I think this is also a picture of what God incarnate, Jesus Christ, does for us spiritually. Yes, He heals physically, and yes, we see His power here. But I also think this is a testimony and a picture and a reminder of the fact that Christ heals physically and spiritually. Four ideas that I want to to drive home um, and hopefully call us to some action and help us understand how this connects with our lives about the willing Christ that we have. The first thing we see in this text is, yes, Christ is willing. He's willing to listen. The Scriptures tell us that this man, this man with leprosy, when he sees Jesus in verse 12, he falls on his face, prostrate on the ground, and begging, he says to Jesus, Lord, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And what do we find Jesus doing? He responds, I am willing. Jesus listened. He was willing to listen. But it's interesting. Look at the attitude behind this man. Because I think the attitude that we bring plays into Jesus listening. This man fell flat on his face on the ground, certainly a position of humility. This man was humble. The Scripture tells us he begged Jesus. Now think about somebody who's begging. If you're begging, you are at the end of yourself. You understand that you do not have what is necessary, that you are dependent upon another for what you need. This man was not only humble by falling flat on his face, he was dependent. He knew that he could not heal himself, that he needed another. And then lastly, he says to Jesus, in part of his phrase, he says, you can heal, or you can make me clean. He's identifying the majesty and the power and the deity of Jesus Christ. That is an honoring posture. This man was humble. He was uh, honoring Christ. And he was dependent. Now, every time that I have had to go before a judge, in all of those cases, my lawyer has always told me, wear a suit, get a fresh haircut, stop the screaming and the cursing, 
and sit there quietly. Um, you're supposed to laugh more at that. You're supposed to think of me as, obviously you assume that I've been before a judge a whole bunch of times. But anyway, <laughs> the, the, the lawyers, a good lawyer is going to tell their client, act respectful, appropriate, humble, dependent, and honoring. Because the judge is going to respond to humility, dependence, and um, whatever the third thing is. I just lost it. Um, Come on, somebody help me. You're listening. What? Yeah, suit. You're right. A judge is going to respond differently to somebody who's arrogant, independent, and dishonoring. Now, we want the response that comes from the humility, the dependence, and the honoring. Well, it's the same thing. We, we understand that. We operate the same, same way. If somebody comes up to you uh, asking for some money, but they're all arrogant, you don't want to give them money. God even says in James chapter 4, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is willing. Jesus is willing to listen. But our attitude plays into that. Now, what does that mean for us? How does that, how does that connect for us in anything? I think we need to be men and women that examine our own hearts. I don't doubt, because the Scripture teaches, that for anybody who is in Christ, for anybody who is regenerate and has been saved from uh, the wrath of God, at some point they have come to God with an attitude that is humble, that is honoring Him, and that is dependent. But is that the way we approach God now? Or have we potentially developed a mentality that now that I am in Christ, that means that God is supposed to do certain things for me. I'm supposed to be healthy. My children are supposed to grow up into fine, uh, successful Adults that make me proud. My marriage is supposed to work out. Uh, I'm supposed to have financial security. And when that does not occur in our lives, certainly grievous, certainly painful. But does our attitude in how we approach God change? Do we maintain a humble attitude toward God when for whatever reason in His sovereign plan... He decides to bring those things into our lives? Do we still have a dependent mentality toward Him? Do we understand that every breath that we take is by Him, for Him, through Him, and to Him? Do we still have an attitude that is honoring Him, that says, I do not like this situation, but you are the King on the throne, and may you receive glory in however this is happening and whatever you're doing in my life, you bring glory to yourself. You show yourself. Use this for the expansion of the kingdom. And please, help me with my pain. How do we maintain our attitude toward God? Christ is willing to listen, but our attitude is important in that whole exchange. Christ is willing to listen. Christ is also willing to touch. Look at, look at what it says here in the text. This man throws himself on the ground, 
begs Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. In verse 13 it says, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Now, uh, the scripture uh, in the translation I'm reading out of the NIV, it calls this skin disease leprosy. Scholars will say, is it actually leprosy or is it not? It doesn't really matter. This man was covered in a disease that cost him everything. It made him a complete outcast in society. Um, He had to walk around going, unclean, unclean, and everybody would flee and stay away, and he couldn't work. Um, Who knows what had happened, but his life had become utterly ruined, totally perverted by this disease. And what does Jesus do? This man has fallen on the ground in front of him. He is begging him. And so Jesus reaches out and touches him. Can you taste the compassion that is indicated in that picture? Jesus is willing to touch. He is full of compassion. I, I have three daughters. And when they're sick... I'll, I'll get around them. But I don't want to get around y'all's kids when they're sick. My wife would always say, you know, you'll change your own kid's diaper, but somebody else's. And yet, the sovereign king, the eternal one, God in the flesh, reaches down and touches the utterly ruined. Now, we see that in other places in Scripture. Go back to Genesis. Go back to the garden. Go back to sin first entering. Adam and Eve have sinned. And then they hear God in the garden. And they run and they hide. Now the text in Genesis doesn't say that God grabbed them or touched them. But He still does the same thing. He calls out, Where are you? You see the compassion in our Heavenly Father? Go to Philippians chapter 2. Listen to these words. Uh, It's speaking of Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." Do you see the compassion that not only we find willingly coming out of our Christ in this story of the leper, but all through the scriptures we see a compassion of the most high, most holy God to creatures that have been utterly ruined by sin, that that are tainted and perverted and diseased all over. And yet the king on the throne reaches out and touches us. Now what do we do with that? A couple questions. Do we respond appropriately to this compassionate God? Do we find ourselves moved to worship Him? And I'm not talking about the first few minutes of the service when everybody's walking in and the music's playing. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about singing songs. I'm talking about are we moved by the compassion of the Most High God to where we view our very lives, every breath that we take, every action that we say, 
the way we do our jobs, the way we treat our wives, the way we raise our children, the way we drive on the street, the way we spend our money, the way that we get involved in God's expanding kingdom. Do we see all of that as a response of worship to this compassionate king that does not owe us anything and yet reaches down and touches the utterly ruined. Are we men and women that worship a king in response to that compassion? I think when our minds are wrapped around that and when we taste and digest and breathe who this God is, we can't help but worship him. Christ is willing to listen. Christ is willing to touch. And Christ is willing to heal. Look at what Jesus says again in verse 13 to this man who has prostrated himself before him and begged him. He says, I am willing. And then he says, be clean. And the scripture says, and immediately the leprosy left him. Now, imagine that for a moment. You've spent the last decade or more watching the skin disease grow and increase. And as the scriptures say, you're now covered in leprosy or full of leprosy. And then all of a sudden, as you've pushed through the fear and nervousness, wondering, will he? And you've asked, and he says, I will. Be clean. At that moment, the leprosy is gone. Would that not be fantastic to see and to experience? And yet I've just set you up. Because if you are in Christ, you have experienced that. Think back a moment. Think back to the place where the Holy Spirit had brought you to a recognition of your utter ruinous in sin. The fact that you were covered in sin, that you were full of sin and had brought you to the recognition that you were utterly and completely ruined and perverted and twisted and dependent. You could not save yourself. And the weight of that guilt and remorse heavy upon our heads. And then there's the cry to Jesus to save. And one moment the weight and the guilt is too much to bear and the next moment it's not there. Do you recall that from your rebirth? For some it's probably going to be more intense. But nonetheless, the experience is true. We've experienced, if you're in Christ, the miracle of salvation. We have tasted the willing Savior healing. I love the scene in um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Chronicles of Narnia series, C.S. Lewis's children's work. Aslan, the lion, who's the Christ in the story, uh, has become aware, or at least has had Edmund confess it to him, that Edmund, one of the children, the younger boy, has been in league with the white witch. And as a result of that, the white witch owns him. He is enslaved to the white witch. And Aslan goes to the white witch and pulls her aside and makes a deal. He says, you let Edmund go, and I'm yours. And so the witch, just with utter glee, is like, you idiot, absolutely. 
takes Aslan, leads him to the stone table, ties him up on the stone table, and stabs him in the heart. And you see Aslan die. But the next scene is the stone table broke and Aslan back alive. That's exactly what we have a picture of here. This leper, completely covered in disease, utterly ruined, no hope in himself. His place is taken. Our place is taken. We are full of sin, utterly ruined. And Christ willingly comes and heals. He takes our place. He does what we cannot do. Now, hopefully, um, hopefully you're in Christ. And the question for us here is, how do you view yourself? Diseased or healed? Do you understand that in Christ, being united with Christ means that all of your sin is forgiven? All the leprosy for this guy was gone. Or do you perceive yourself as I got a couple of patches left here and there. It's not quite all gone. And I still feel ugly. And I, I, I know the maker doesn't really want to be around me. I still need to be screaming unclean, unclean, unclean. How do you perceive yourself? The way God perceives you in Christ? Or another way. Christ is willing to listen. Christ is willing to touch. Christ is willing to heal. And Christ is willing to restore. Interesting idea here in this text. Um, The leper has had all his leprosy gone. And then Jesus tells him something in verse 14. Then Jesus ordered him, Don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Now, on the Old Testament law, if you were diseased with skin disease, you uh, had to be outside of the community, walk around saying unclean, unclean. If you were healed from it, you went to the priest and they said, yeah, you're clean from it, you're good to go, you're back in. You can come live back inside the village. You don't have to say unclean anymore. You can actually, I don't know, hug a person or shake a hand or engage in business. You can get a job. You were restored back to the intent of our design. Now, not only is Christ willing to heal, to take a dead man and make him alive, but Christ restores us. Now, in our current states, for those that are in Christ, spiritually we are alive. But our flesh, eh, our flesh is not fully there yet. So there is tension. There is conflict. The flesh desires sin, and the spirit desires righteousness, and the two battle. But there's still a restoration that occurs in salvation. We no longer worship the creation. We worship the creator. We enjoy creation. We honor the creator via creation. That's a restoration of how it was intended to be designed. 
Uh, Hopefully, you experience community and not conflict. Again, a restoration of how things were designed. Adam and Eve didn't fight over toothpaste, you know? Hopefully, you experience a restoration. Hopefully, men, because you are in Christ, you love your wife if you're married, like Christ loved the church. Hopefully, ladies, if you're married, you submit to your husband. A restoration of how God designed and intended things. Let me, uh, let me illustrate that also a little bit. Again, back to the line, the witch in the wardrobe. After Aslan has come back alive, um, he wanders back to where the children are. And he has a conversation with Edmund. And after that conversation, Edmund is restored back to full fellowship with his siblings and with the rest of the people of Aslan. There's a restoration that occurs in salvation. Now. Now, let me challenge you all with two things uh, in response to this text. First, if you find yourself haunted by a sin or sins. One of two things. Maybe you're not right with your maker. Maybe you are not in a place where when I say you're in Christ, that defines you. Resolve that. Maybe you've been brought to the place where the Holy Spirit has shown you the weight of your sin. Resolve that tonight. But I assume that most of you probably are in Christ. If you have a sin that haunts you, if you still find yourself questioning, will He forgive? I want to challenge you tonight. Stop. Stop being haunted by that sin. Find rest in the God who is willing to listen, to touch, to heal, and to restore. Confess your sin, and He is faithful and just and will forgive it. Stop allowing that sin to haunt you and rob you. If you really step back and look at the mentality of saying, yes, but this sin, no, He can't forgive. What you're really saying is God's too small. He's puny. He's not big enough. Jesus wasn't righteous enough to pay for what you did. That's wrong. Yes, He is. Stop allowing sin to haunt you. Now, secondly, a second challenge. Maybe by God's grace, and I hope this is for everyone in the room, you're not haunted by sin. What do we do with this text? Well, I hope one thing you'll do with this text is ask yourself, do I demonstrate a willingness like Jesus demonstrates to the people I come in contact with? Let me put that in other words. Do I extend the grace that has been given to me in the same manner that it's been given to me? Am I willing to listen? Am I willing to touch? We can't heal, but we can certainly proclaim to people the one who can. And we certainly have a play in seeing somebody restored.
do we forgive? I hope, and a lot of what I experience at Grace of Anne, is people who, who respond in a manner that honors our Savior. I hope we're always that way. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I confess that so oftentimes um, I neglect and forget how merciful and compassionate and gracious you are. And Father, I get caught up in such temporal and silly things that I neglect the beauty of your grace. I thank you, Father, that there is complete forgiveness for all those things. And why do you put up with us so? And yet you do. You lavish us with grace again and again. May we be men and women that live lives that that honor and direct people's attention to you in response to that grace. And would you, Father, continue to allow us and build us up as a congregation that extends the same willingness that you extend to us, the same grace that you extend to us. We ask these things in the name of Christ and His name alone. Amen.